You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, this is our third lecture in the course on logic for the International Catholic University. This one is entitled, The Categories. Since today we're going to begin to read Aristotle himself, which is what we'll be doing for the rest of the course, I thought I'd first outline the goals which we have in going over Aristotle in the way that we're going to. Now, I have two goals. The first is to make you able to read Aristotle himself. I don't mean that you'll be able to read Aristotle's Organon easily, since no one can read it easily. It always takes a great deal of effort and concentration to read anything Aristotle writes. And I don't say understand him completely either, because few people do. Rather, our goal is to enable you to read Aristotle with some understanding, to at least get a start in seeing what Aristotle's saying. That's the first goal. The second goal is to enable you to actually use Aristotle's logic. Use it in your own process of study and inquiry. Now, Last time, in the last lecture, I talked about the predicables, and I made a comparison between them and the tools used in building. The predicables are some of the tools we need to make a good definition, just as the builder needs a hammer and saw to build a house. I want to keep using this idea of tool. We can say this, everything we're going to study in logic is a tool that the mind can use to understand the truth. They're the tools we use when we're reading philosophy and theology, reading Aristotle and St. Thomas with understanding, and thinking about the subjects which they're writing about. And they're the tools that we can use to speak and write and teach in an orderly way. Now, in the categories itself, we saw in our last lecture that the mind needs definitions. The first operation of the intellect moves from the vague to the distinct, a vague knowledge of what something is to a distinct knowledge. And it does that by making a definition of the thing. We also saw that we needed tools to make that definition, the genus, species, and difference. We asked at the end of our last lecture whether those were all the tools we needed, and our answer was no. We needed tools that would enable us to find the highest genera. We needed tools for finding specific differences. And that's what the categories is about. It's about those highest genera. It's about the tools that we use to find the specific differences. In today's lecture, we're going to look at the tools that are the highest genera. Now, before Aristotle gets to those highest genera themselves, which are called categories, he makes certain distinctions that lead up to them. Three distinctions 
we're going to look at those three distinctions one by one, and then we're going to give more extensive comments on each of the categories. Now, the first distinction is between the equivocal and the univocal use of a term. Aristotle gives us a first way to see how that works. It's very good, it's very important. This is how he explains it. Things are said to be named equivocally when, though they have a common name, the definition corresponding with the name is different for each. Aristotle gives an example of what he means here. He says that a man such as Socrates and a picture of a man in a painting can both be called animal. That is, I can say Socrates is an animal, and I can say that picture is an animal. I've got the same word animal predicated of two different things. When I use that word, it's not only predicated of two different things, but the word has two different meanings. When I say Socrates is an animal, I mean something different than when I say the picture is an animal. Therefore, in that case, the word animal is being used equivocally. A word is used equivocally when it's used twice, when it has two different meanings. Then Aristotle goes on to explain the univocal use of a term. On the other hand, things are said univocally which have both the name and the definition answering to the name in common. Now we can use the example of a man and a cow. I can say man is an animal. I can also say the cow is an animal. And the word animal has the same meaning in both statements. So I've used the word twice, but it only has one meaning. That's when a word is used univocally. So that's the difference between the univocal and equivocal uses of a term. When a term is used twice with two different meanings, it's used equivocally. Once, when it's used twice with one meaning, it's used univocally. Now, that's not a hard distinction to make. Let's go on to a second distinction. It's also not a difficult one. He says, forms of speech are either simple or composite. Examples of the latter are such expressions as man runs, man wins. Of the former, man ox runs wins. Now reading it out, we get an idea of why it's hard to read Aristotle. He hardly says anything. He expresses things as concisely as possible. What he's saying here is that if I gave you the sentence, the man runs, that is obviously a complex expression. It's made of many parts. If I simply said the word man to you, that's obviously a simple expression. It has just one part, man. Now what's interesting is that the terms that are translated here as simple and complex in Aristotle's Greek are actually without interweaving and interwoven. So Aristotle's image is this, that sometimes when we use words, we weave them together. And sometimes when we use words, we don't. Former are complex expressions, the latter simple. This image of weaving words together is going to be very helpful when we talk about the second and the third operations 
of the human intellect. Now, the third distinction that Aristotle makes is a distinction between things that are predicated of a subject and present in a subject. Now, before we explain this distinction, we should go back and explain the word category. Now, category is a Greek word. It's the name of this book. But in this context is where Aristotle first uses the word category. Category, we could say, is just the Greek word that means predicate. Now, the highest genera are rightly called the categories. Why? Because they, being the highest genera, are always predicated of another. They are never the subject of a definition. So since they are always predicates, they're called the predicates or the categories. Another way to look at the word category is this. The Greek word category actually comes from two words, kata and agora. And what it means is to make a public accusation against someone, to accuse someone, to speak against them in the marketplace, in the public forum. So a category is a kind of accusation. We could look at it this way. When we give something a category, we're accusing it of belonging to a certain class of things. A category is an accusation against the thing. Now, that's what's meant by the term category. It's a predicate. The categories are the highest genera, which are only predicates. And to put something in a category is to kind of make an accusation against it. So the distinction between predicated and present in, then, we should look at it in this way. There are things that are predicates, and there are things that, while they're not quite predicates, they function in a way similar to predicates. Let me give you an example here. There are two English words that are closely related, brown and brownness. I can say, the coat is brown, and I have predicated brown of the coat. I can say, the coat has brownness, but I can't say the coat is brownness. I can't predicate brownness of the coat. The sentence, the coat is brownness, doesn't even make sense. And this is the distinction Aristotle's pointing to when he distinguishes what is predicated of another and what is present in another. What is predicated of another, I can say that other is that thing. The coat is brown. But what's present in another, I can only say the other has that thing. The coat has brownness. Now, these are three distinctions between the univocal and the equivocal, between the simple and the complex, between present in and predicated of, set the stage for understanding what the categories as a book is about. The book is about words, but what kind of words? Are they words that are used with many different meanings, equivocally, or with the same meaning, univocally? Since we are looking for the ultimate, the highest genera, and they have to be predicated of their species according to the same meaning, we have to say we're looking for words used univocally. Secondly, the categories is about simple words, 
simple expressions. If the highest genera were complex words, complex expressions, they would need to be explained by something prior because complexity always has a cause. Thus, the complex word cannot be understood without accounting for its simple parts. But the categories aren't going to be complex, but they're going to be simple words. They're going to explain what all the other words mean. For example, the expression man runs would have to be explained through analyzing man and runs. So it could not be a highest genus. But the expression substance, since it's simple, does not necessarily need to be analyzed and therefore can be a highest genus. Now, we can ask a third question. Are the categories predicated of their subjects or present in their subjects? Clearly, the categories must be predicated of their subjects because they are predicated of the species and because they are parts of the definition of the species. And the definition has to be predicated of the species. That is, the categories give us a genus for the species, and we always say that the species is that genus. We never say that the species has that genus. We're asking the question, what is it, when we're looking for a definition. We're not asking the question, what does it have? So the categories, then, are going to be names. They're going to be words that are used univocally, that are simple, and that are predicated of their species not present in them. And that describes what the book The Categories is about. By no means have I exhausted our discussion of these distinctions, but I think we have enough to move on to talking about the categories themselves. Now, we said this before, Aristotle doesn't think there's just one highest genus. He thinks there are many highest genera. Now, St. Thomas explains why in another place, but we're not yet in a position to understand that account. Let's simply note this. Aristotle finally settles on there being 10 highest genera. And he gives the following list. Expressions that are in no way composite signify substance, quantity, quality, relation, place, time, position, outfit, action, or being acted upon. That's quite a list. Uh, one thing I'd want to point out about the list, I've changed the translation a little bit. Uh, the translation of the word outfit is usually given as state or habit. Now, the word state conveys nothing to an English audience at all. It's just a bad translation. The word habit is deceptive because our first understanding of the word habit has to do with repeating actions over and over, having the habit of smoking. But what's meant here by habit is something like the habit of a nun or a riding habit. And so a better English word for it is outfit, something that you wear. That's one of the categories. He gives examples of each. He says, examples of substance are man or horse, of quantity, such terms as two cubits long or three cubits long, of quality, such attributes as white or grammatical, 
double and half and greater fall under the category of relation in the marketplace, in the Lyceum, fall under the category of place. Yesterday, last year, fall under the category of time. Lying down, sitting up are terms indicating position. Having shoes, being armed, belong to the category of outfit. To lance or to cauterize is an action. To be lanced or to be cauterized is being acted upon. Now, Aristotle gives us a list of 10. The last six, place, time, position, outfit, action, or being acted upon. He does no more than give examples of. The first four are the ones that are most important and the ones that are most complex. Therefore, in the rest of this lecture, what I'm going to do is briefly talk about the first four categories of Aristotle. The first category is the category of substance. It is a highest genus. We even talked about it in Porphyry. It's the example he used. So it has no definition in the strict sense. But Aristotle does more than give examples of it. He gives a kind of description of it. And he distinguishes two ways in which the term is used. In the first and strictest way in which the term is used, Substance is that which is neither predicable of nor present in a subject. We could look at it this way. Substance is not something that is in another thing or belongs to another thing. Substance just is. And other things are in substances or belong to substances. For example, I don't say about anything else that it is Socrates. Neither do I say about anything else that it has Socrates. It's Socrates is neither present in another thing nor predicated of another thing. Therefore, he is a substance in the strictest sense of the term. Now, the strict sense of the term substance, Aristotle will call primary substance. There's a second sense to the term substance. It seems strange to say that substance is not predicated of another thing, since we say that substance is a category, and categories are always predicates. So Aristotle's answer is that in another, looser sense, some things are substances which are predicates. What is a substance in this second sense is something that is predicated of substance in the first sense in answer to the question, what is it? For example, if someone asks me, what is Socrates? I would say, Socrates is a man. The word man answers the question, what is it about Socrates? And is predicated of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and therefore it is called substance in a secondary sense. And furthermore, the genera of these secondary substances are also secondary substances. So not only is man a secondary substance because he is predicated in answer to the question, what is it of the primary substance, Socrates, but also animal is a secondary substance because it is predicated of man. 
and living thing is a secondary substance because it's predicated of animal and we go up to the tree until we come to substance itself which itself is a substance in the secondary sense of the term. So there are two senses to the term substance. Things that are neither predicated of another nor present in another, that's our first meaning, and the second meaning, things that are predicated of primary substances in answer to the question, what is it? Next, we should talk about quantities. We're only going to talk about the most important feature of quantity. Quantity, we can describe by saying it's the answer to the question, how many or how much? So if I ask how much water you have and you say a gallon, gallon is a quantity. If I say how many cows are in the field and you say three cows, three is a quantity. Aristotle divides quantity into two species. He says some quantities are continuous, some are discrete. Now, we're going to leave aside the formal definitions he gives of these species and just talk about them in a very rough way. A discrete quantity is one which cannot be infinitely divided. For example, whole numbers are discrete quantities because I can only divide them down to the number one. If I try to divide the number one, I leave the realm of whole numbers. So, I can say there are three cows and I can divide the three cows into one cow, one cow, one cow. I can't divide the one cow anymore because I will no longer have a cow. So, discrete quantities cannot be infinitely divided. But continuous quantities can be infinitely divided. If I take a line, for example, the line has a certain length. That length can be divided into half. That half can be divided into half. So on and so on and so on. I never come to the end of those divisions. So length is a continuous quantity. Surface area, volume are continuous quantities. Another example of discrete quantity is the syllable, which has both a long and a short. That's all we want to say about the category of quantity. Now I want to talk a little about the category of relation. A complete treatment of relation would require consideration of many subtle points, but we're all going to point out only the obvious facts. First of all, the word relation is a very abstract term, but Aristotle uses a very concrete Greek term, prosti, which we could translate literally as towards something. A relation is a towards something. Things are called relative when they are named towards on account of another. For example, the word superior is a relative word because we cannot just say something is superior as we could say Socrates is a man. We must say something is superior to another thing. We name something superior in relation to another, towards another. A quantity is not just half, it's half of another quantity. So any term which can only be used by referring to another term is said to be used relatively and falls into the category of relation. One thing to notice about relations, every relative term has a correlative term associated 
with it. For example, superior is superior to another thing, and what do we call the other thing? Inferior. Superior and inferior are co-relative terms. Half is half of another thing, and that other thing is the double of it. Half and double are co-relative terms. Every relative has a co-relative. Our last category is the category of quality. Maybe the best way to put in English the word is to say that the category of quality answers the question, is it such a thing? Or what is the thing like? Now, since different is the opposite of the like, this category has the characteristic of admitting of contraries. Many, though not all, qualities have contraries. So for example, black and white are qualities. They answer the question, what is the thing like? They're also, in relation to each other, contrary terms. In the same way, we can ask what a man is like, and the answer would be, the man is good. We can ask, what is the other man like, and we might say, the other man is bad. Good and bad tell us what the man is like. They are qualities, and they are contrary to each other. There are some qualities which do not have contraries. So for example, shapes do not necessarily have contraries. There's no contrary specifically of triangular. Triangular tells us what something is like and so falls into the category of quality. So those are the four main categories that Aristotle talks about in his book, The Categories. He says very little about the others, as we noted before. He simply notes that action and being acted upon can be contrary to each other. So heating and cooling are contrary actions. Being heated and being cooled are contraries of being acted upon. As for the others, he simply gives examples. So now we know what the highest genera are, what the categories are, and we can use them in definitions. But what we have to do next is to be able to divide down from those highest genera in order to get definitions of the species we're interested in. The tools that we're going to use to divide down are the tools that Aristotle discusses in the last part of his book, The Categories. And we're going to discuss those in our next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.